We find ourselves uh, a couple of months into a study in the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. So if, if today happens to be your first day here, uh, we, we kind of pick a book of the Bible and we start at the beginning of it and we work our way through it. And so we, uh, we are in the gospel of Mark right now. Uh, and and uh, like I said, we're a couple of months into it. We're going to be in, in finishing up chapter four and, and getting into, into chapter five. Um, today we're going to be looking at the idea that faith fights fear. I don't know how many of you like scary movies. Anyone out there willing to throw up their hand, right? That fear aspect that scare you and, and take you to the edge and maybe even a, a little bit beyond. And then if you're like me at all, uh, maybe it affects your sleep for a day or two after you've seen it and you regret it. But then you, maybe you desire to see it again. Uh, because it's a movie. You know what's going to happen. You know it's just a movie, um, that sort of thing. But fear in real life is out there also, not, not just in the movie, in the world that we live in, in a fallen world, in a broken world, uh, in a world where sin is, is trying to dominate. There's a lot of disease. There's a lot of death. Uh, we live in, in a world where there's a lot of wars, and that could bring uh, fearful thoughts to your mind. Um, the unknown, maybe about your job, maybe about your family, maybe about your future. Fear can cripple us. It really can. Uh, and so even though movies sometimes are fun to watch, and even those that are going to be a little bit frightening and, and, and maybe cause you to tense up a little bit, real life uh, isn't that fun when fear takes over. And, and it can even cause the believer, you and I, a lot of us here, have placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. We believe the truths in the Bible, and, and we know that the Holy Spirit lives in us, and that, and that God is walking with us through everything that we go through on this earth, and yet it, it, can, it can cause the believer sometimes to doubt what Jesus has said, and, and to doubt who he is. Fortunately for us uh, today in our text, it's going to assure us who Jesus is, that he is Lord of all, and it, and it also tells us what he has said, that he will get you to the other side, and, and Jesus will emphasize the key to conquering fear is found in that one word, faith, where we place our faith and our trust. Jesus will tell us that the opposite of fear is faith, and that the opposite of faith is fear, and we'll see how that plays together in this passage. And when we, we trust and truly know that Jesus is our Lord, that he is Lord of all, then we can put our faith in him. That's what we're going to see in this passage today. Jesus doesn't promise us, he didn't promise his disciples that you won't have storms in your life, that you won't have adversity in your life, but he does promise you that he will be with you and that he is strong enough to deal with everything fearful in your life, everything that might come into your life or might come at you, right? And that he is in this world with you and he is for you. And if you truly believe that, if you can, if you can get to that place in your faith where you believe that God is with you, God is for you, and, and, and God's not going to leave you in the middle of whatever fearful is going on, whatever unknown is going on, you'll get to a place 
where no matter what is happening in your life, you can continue to move forward and not be crippled by that fear. So again, faith fights fear. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. We're going to go all the way to 520. So we're going to kind of click through a couple of stories. Again, we know John Mark likes to give minimal amount of details. So we'll try to dig in where we can. And we'll, we'll try to see really what the Holy Spirit has for you and I today. Starting uh, there in verse 35 of chapter 4. It says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Let's pause right there really quick. Um, Jesus had just finished a massive day uh, or maybe even a couple of days. It appears to be a lot of teaching in one day, at least the way Mark writes it, uh, but of teaching. Uh, he's giving uh, parables. He's, he's talking about the kingdom of God coming, right? Which is him bringing in, ushering in the kingdom of God. He gives the disciples the next plan. We're going to go to the other side of the sea now. If you remember the crowds that were coming in from the local towns, they estimate were between 10 and 20,000 people, maybe more. His ministry was growing. People were coming to see him. He was healing people. He was, he was teaching on the kingdom, and people were coming to the place where he was pushed down to the, the edge of the sea, there were so many people there that he had somebody pull up a boat and, and he got in the boat and he did his teaching. Pretty cool day of teaching, a day of ministry, a day of healing. And now it, it's getting towards the end of that day and he says, hey, let's go to the other side of the sea now, right? This is a clue to this passage, so don't skip over this. Jesus's words, uh, they're, they're trustworthy they're sure. It's something that you can put your trust in when Jesus speaks. Now, I'm guessing at, at this time, his disciples, those who were with him, those who hopped on the boat with him, at this point, they believed Jesus. They trusted Jesus enough to get in that boat and believe they would get to the other side. Or they wouldn't have gotten in the boat. If the boat didn't look seaworthy or if the, 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 the weather, which we're going to find out here in a minute, is going to come up. But if it looked bad, maybe, they would, maybe there would be some fear there. Maybe there would be some, some distrust. But we see they hop in there, right? But spoiler alert, you probably know this story. There is some doubt, and it's going to be coming in pretty quick. And, and again, that's where it's going to give us some opportunity to say, okay, how does this apply to my life? But right now, the disciples are fine with that. And it says they, they, they're leaving the crowd. They took Jesus with him in the boat just as he was. And, and as we were reading through this passage this week and, and studying it and praying over it, uh, one of the things that stood out to us is it says, it says, just as he was. Why would, he, why would Mark, the author of this, write, Jesus went along with him just as he was? And, and in... in, in true Mark fashion, our writer is telling us that this happened right away after he was done preaching. He didn't go home and shower. Uh, he didn't go and have dinner somewhere. He didn't take a nap, nothing like that. He just went as he was. So Jesus had just spent at least a day teaching and healing and, and interacting with a massive crowd. And as soon as that time was over, as soon as he was done, 
He got in the boat, or the boat that he was in, he encouraged his disciples to get in. He got it to go to the other side of the lake. I can only imagine this time of ministry for Jesus was just crazy. It was exhausting. If any of you uh, work a job where you get exhausted in it, you kind of know what I'm talking about. Okay, so for uh, about 19 years, I worked for Costco. And, and, and in a lot of those years, I was in management. And the job was good. It was decent. We had a lot of employees, and we were able to take care. So that door would roll up every day at 945 so you guys could all come in and get your rotisserie chicken and your toilet paper, right? Uh, and so we had that. But there were some days when we would get a few sick calls. And when you're starting at 3 a.m., when somebody calls in sick, it's not easy to find somebody to replace that shift. And so there would be mornings where a couple of forklift drivers would call in sick or three or four stalkers would call in sick. And even though I was a manager, I would be called into action. Maybe I'm driving the lift. Maybe I'm stocking freight. Maybe I'm doing both. And there were some mornings, I know you're going to have a hard time believing this, but we were still finishing up the stocking, throwing those last things onto that pallet so that you could come in and buy them right at 10 o'clock. And that door that you've been waiting for to go up the last 15 minutes was finally going up, right? Exhausting days, long days, you know, just the, the physical exhaustion that could come with work. Now, Jesus is God, but he's God in the flesh. And his flesh gets tired, just like any other person, you and I, or any other preacher. And, and so look what happens next as this passage continues on in verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was, was already filling, right? So this it just gives a little bit of background, but look what happens next. It says, but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care we are perishing. So this is, this is an interesting story. They take off to go to the other side. They take off to get away from the crowds, to get away from ministry, right? And this monster storm arrives, right? It could be translated also a fierce gale of wind, okay? This is a big storm. The waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was filling up already. Now, I'm not a fisherman, I will go fishing with any one of you because I think a lot of life lessons are learned out either on the lake or in the river. But I'm, I'm not a fisherman. I, I don't even necessarily like to go in boats. I'm not afraid of them. I'll get in one and I'll go with you again. I'll, I'll do it if it's necessary. But I can imagine for you who are fishermen or do enjoy the water that if you're in a craft and it starts taking on water, that's not a good thing. Would you agree with me? Right, that's not a good thing. And so the boat is filling up, right? But he, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Now, before you think, how could Jesus be sleeping? Let me tell you something. I talked a few minutes ago about exhaustion, uh, right, from me working at Costco. There were days that I would literally walk to my car and, and turn on the car, and if it's summertime, the air conditioning, because now it's one or two, three in the afternoon, and, and the radio, and I'd lock my doors because I worked in Tacoma, and I would lay my seat back, and I would take like a 15, 20-minute nap. I was exhausted, right? Uh, I got to make sure Gwen's out of the room. Here she is. There were times I would fall asleep sitting at a stoplight, okay? And I'm not trying to say that Costco overworked me. It's just I worked hard some days, 
like really hard. And then I was exhausted, but nothing could prepare me for when I retired out of Costco and I left Costco and I became a pastor. And now I'm not telling you this to, to get a woe is me or to get pats on my back, but I'm telling you when I leave here on Sunday after preaching God's word, after engaging with people on a, on a, not only a physical level where we're communicating, but also on an emotional and a spiritual level, when I've done some counseling, there's an exhaustion that takes over that I have never even dreamed of, right? Sunday afternoons, I'm gone. Like, it, it, there's not much of me left, right? I like to go home. I like to crash on a couch. Hopefully there's a football game on, and half the time I fall asleep, right? And, and so the, the family will wake me up if something incredible happens. We'll rewind the TV. You know, I, I love my football, but I'm telling you, I'm exhausted, and I know a lot of you work hard and you got jobs that are taxing and you understand what I'm saying about the exhaustion. But for me, at least, there was, there was even in my hardest days at Costco, there was nothing like preaching and, and doing God's work. There was a, a physical and emotional taxation on my body that takes place. And, and I love it. And I love engaging in God's word and I love engaging with you guys. But I, all I'm saying all of this to say Jesus is fully God, but he's fully man. He's been preaching God's word because he is God, right? And so he's preaching about the kingdom coming. He's healing and he's exhausted and he falls asleep in the boat. And, and so the, the disciples are freaking out. The, the boat is taken on water. And, and here's Jesus who tells us to get in this boat and go to the other side of the sea. And he's asleep on a, a cushion. You can't blame the disciples for waking Jesus, can you? They were literally afraid for their lives. They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, I could, I, I could blame them. I think this question really shows they really do need to be blamed, kind of, because Jesus had just said, we're going to get into the boat and we're going to go across, right? And so that faith in Jesus should have told them, we are going to make it. But sometimes in life, we know the truths. We know the truths of God's word. We know his promises, and yet we still doubt. So what can we learn from them? We need to ask this because we so often are them, right? We've been given the promises. We know the truths. And then a situation arises and we start to doubt God. So here's a few things. It's not wrong for them to call Jesus teacher, uh, but he's going to show them in just a moment that he is also Lord, Okay, he's going to show them that he's also Lord. This is the next level of discipleship Jesus is looking for from his disciples. And, and for you and I today, we need to get to the place where we recognize Jesus as Lord and we hold to that no matter what's going on in our life. They say to him, do you not care? Again, this is, is, is kind of a brutal accusation, right, that they lay on him in their fear they, they think, Jesus, do you not care about us? These are men who have been spending time with Jesus, seeing his ministry, listening to his teaching. Finally, I see that they're convinced that they are going to perish. Right? Jesus teaching, Jesus healing, uh, Jesus showing he, that he is Lord, and yet they are afraid that they're going to die. They think so little of his power. 
that he's not able to keep them safe. He's, he's done some pretty incredible things in their, in their midst. They've been watching him and the healing that he has done. But as I said before, you and I can learn from this because we so often are just like the disciples during storms in, storms in our lives. So we have to consider that when we look at this story. Do we think of Jesus just as a great teacher? Or do we really give him that place of Lord in our lives? What I'm, I'm talking about the disciples and, and their unwillingness to do that, at least through their actions it's showing that. Are we living our lives the same? In the middle of life's difficult or painful trials, do we ask Jesus such questions as, do you even care about me, Jesus? Where are you? If God loved me, why would this be happening in my life? And when the storms are raging, do we really believe that Jesus can get us through them? So often, Jesus chooses to keep us in the storm rather than saving us from the storm. And do you and I have a faith that will allow us to persevere through that storm? I don't know about you, but those are some challenging questions for me. And ones that I'm going to ponder. And and in light of this story, I'm challenging myself so that my faith can continue to grow. Verse 39, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? In a beautiful and powerful way, Jesus shows who he is and that, that he can be trusted. He awoke and he, he rebuked the wind. Be still, right? Peace. Literally, it means be muzzled and stay muzzled, right? He's talking to the wind, right? Right? Again, I I don't go out in the sea much or in the ocean much or in the Puget Sound much or in the lakes much. But if you're acquainted with with water, if you you get out in those boats, sometimes the waves dash high, right, for some time, even after the wind stops blowing, right? As we were looking at some stories this week, we saw that, that even after the wind would settle down, that the waves would take a long time to settle down, and yet Jesus calms Not only the wind, but he calms the waves. Jesus had spent so much time with these disciples. uh, He had taught them and he had showed them who he was. That he allowed these wind and waves to test their faith. And sadly, they had failed this test. Hopefully, they've grown from this test. And now note, if you are a mentor in a discipleship relationship, right, Jesus gives his disciples grace and truth. And this will be important for you and I to remember in the relationships that God allows us to be that mentor in. The grace is the miracle, right? We see that here. But then as he reviews the situation with them, the waves aren't the only thing that get rebuked. Jesus rebukes the waves, but then he goes on to rebuke 
the disciples. Don't stop short in lovingly rebuking those under you when necessary. Don't be afraid of confrontation that you fail to use failures as a lesson. Sometimes we don't want to talk about it. We, we, we want to avoid that. And yet God has brought those into our lives so that we can learn from those failures. Why are you so afraid? The word he uses for fear isn't the typical Greek word. Instead, he uses one that is, is forceful, right? It, it can literally be translated cowardly. Why are you still cowards after all this time with me? Then he adds, have you still no faith? By throwing still in there, he's emphasizing that there should have been growth by these men. Remember what they had witnessed so far. They had witnessed teaching. They had witnessed miracles. They had witnessed these healings. They should have known by this point who Jesus is. Faith is the key word here. The key to beating fear, the fear that these men experienced, was their faith. The faith they had in Jesus. When, when the storm is raging around you, brothers and sisters, how do you respond? Be honest with yourself. Do you respond in fear or do you respond in faith? Or in a mixture of both? And yet our goal is to get to a place where we can respond in faith. If you've read stories of people who have been given the, the terminal diagnosis, and yet they go forward in faith, and there's not always healing, but their testimony is beautiful. You know when you read it, you can be encouraged by that. And yet are you at the place where you are ready for that? When you lose your job, can you move forward in faith? Can you trust God to bring you something else? something better we need to move forward in our faith fear sneaks in some of the best horror movies are when you get frightened and you didn't know it was gonna scare you right then right you weren't expecting it that's that's how a, a good horror movie or, or suspense movie is created and our lives are like that we have fear that sneaks in that we're not ready for do you respond with faith to battle that fear? No matter what the storm is in your life, know that Jesus is in the boat with you. He hasn't gone anywhere. And don't ask him just to remove you from the storm. Pray for the faith to believe in his power in the midst of the storm. Because that's where Jesus wants you to grow as a disciple of his. Interestingly enough, the response of the disciples is they were filled with great fear. They see Jesus do this incredible miracle, save them, stop the wind, stop the waves. And they say, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. And Mark uses the word they were filled with great fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs. I would encourage you. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs. Read one proverb a day. Uh, I'm doing that right now myself. 
and, and I'm, I'm really enjoying that. And, and I'm telling you, it talks about a proper fear of God and it, how it allows your, your faith to grow. We don't need to fear the storms, uh, but we ought to, in an appropriate way, fear the maker and the master of the storms. And that's Christian growth. As you grow as a disciple, you understand who God is. Recognize his power and his lordship and, and put your faith in Jesus. The second story in our passage it's, it's the classic out of the frying pan and into the fire scenario. They've just experienced the sea. And then look what happens here starting in chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea. They finally get across, right, to the, the country of the Gerasenes. And, and Jesus had stepped out of the boat immediately, right? He, they just get there, right? They're probably hoping and expecting maybe a day or two of rest, Relaxation. No, as soon as he steps out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived amongst the tombs, and, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles into pieces. This area is most likely a Gentile area, Gentile land, from what we know of the geography and the people, uh, that's kind of where all the scholars have landed, went across the sea, right? Jesus had been spending a lot of time with his people, right? The Israelites, the children of Israel, God's chosen people, and yet he goes across the sea. Another reason we think it probably was is in a a couple of verses we're going to see some uh, pig herders, uh, and the pig wasn't necessarily okay for the Jew at this point. They weren't eating it. It was an unclean animal. So more likely than not, there wouldn't be a lot of pig farmers in uh, Israel. Uh, and so it gives us just an idea. But Jesus had spent most of his time ministering to the Jews, the healing, the teaching. So it's important to know. John Mark likely includes this story on purpose, acknowledging the fact that Jesus came to save the whole earth and its slavery from sin. And so here we're going to see Jesus interact with the Gentile. Now Jesus and his disciples are instantly greeted, uh, but by something out of a horror movie. We already had talked about horror movies, suspense movies, right? This man was completely demonized. Again, these aren't my words. Look at the description there, right? He lived among the tombs. He had supernatural strength. They tried to bound him or shackle him, and he continued to break the chains. Right? That's not normal man's strength. Right? Mark's description gets even more uh, frightening in these next few verses. Let's continue on there. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. So not only did he live in the tombs with dead, uh, the dead people, right? Rotting corpses. Nobody could subdue him. Night and day, he was always crying. He was cutting himself with stones. I mean, imagine being one of the disciples, still rattled from their near-death experience out on the sea, probably hoping just to be able to relax for a few hours, if not a day or two. 
get away from the people, and then, and then this. This is what greets them. I don't know personally which would have been more frightening, the storm out at sea or, or meeting this man. But look at, at how, the G, uh, how the demons, I say, respond to Jesus and, and, and his lordship, right? It says, when they saw Jesus from afar, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Now, continuing on in verse 7, it says, And crying out with a loud voice, after he had run over to greet Jesus, to meet Jesus, uh, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And, And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Again, crying out in this loud voice, uh, it, it, whether it was demonic shrieking or just a man's voice, because of the, the anguish that he was in, the man says to him, what do you have uh, to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Uh, uh, another instance of a demon with supernatural knowledge, right? This demon knew who Jesus was. Look at the way he interacts with him. Look at what he calls him, right? Another instance where the demon uh, seems to know better than even the disciples, right? This answers their question from four, chapter 4, verse 21. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's what the disciples said after he had calmed the storm, right? They were a great fear. Who is this guy? Well, what is the, the demon-filled man? He says he's the son of the most high God. This is also a Gentile way to refer to God. Uh, we see this in other places in Scripture. So it's another clue for us that he is now over on the other side of the lake uh, where the Gentiles lived. Because for them, many gods were okay. And yet his interaction says he's the son of the most high God. And he says, do not torment me. The demon, as previously occurred in Mark, knows its eternal fate. This is the second time we've seen interaction between Jesus and a demon. For he was saying to to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. The way the story is told, in some ways you can picture the shrieking, the command by Jesus, the demons pleading, all this is, is happening at one time. Just this chaotic mess of talking and shouting and commanding. Right? Demons are beings. They have personalities. They even have names. Look what Jesus asks this demon for his name. And it wasn't just one demon. They, they replied, it says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, a Roman legion of soldiers could be up to 6,000 men. This was a horde of demons. No matter the actual number, there were too many to name independently. And it says uh, at the end of this section, he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. These demons possessed this man, and they wanted to stay where they were at. Whatever success they were feeling, they were finding. But in verse 11, it says, Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission And the unclean spirits came out of the man, came out and entered into the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, 
rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, this scene baffles me a little bit as I've read through this before. I'll be honest. Uh, There's a few things here, though, to note. The tormentor is now the tormented. The goal of Satan is exposed. Death and destruction. Uh, The the man was constantly cutting himself. The demons, uh, you know, then when they are taken out of the man and put into the pigs, they drive the pigs off of a cliff and into the sea, ultimately the pigs committing suicide. I mean, they're, they're, they're going away. They're dying. The, the, the torment from the tormentor. The goal of Jesus, though, is, is also exposed. We see that here. We see life. We see uh, liberty. He has the power and the authority to deal with Satan. This battle between good and evil, Jesus gives us a preview of the fate of Satan and his demons. And, and the demon even alluded to that, the torment. Why do they beg to be cast into the pigs? I don't know for sure. Now, uh, again, it, there's not enough details to know exactly what would have happened had he just uh, exercised them out of this man, but they were asking to be placed or the authority to be uh, able to go into these pigs. I don't know the exact reason, um, but the pigs were the unlucky recipient of these demons. The pig farmers, now, that was a big loss for them, obviously, but Jesus allows this to happen. Know this, Jesus is more powerful than Satan. We see that again in the second story about his interaction with demons. Satan's time will come, and it's likely that, that by delivering the man But allowing the demons to continue on in their destructive work, Jesus was acknowledging that Satan's time hasn't come to full fruition. But it will. Also, let's note this. While the the demonic is real, Satan far more often appears as an angel of light. We have to keep that in mind, especially as we continue through the book of Mark. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled, of course they did, these were their pigs, right, and told in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. The response to Jesus' lordship by these herdsmen and all the people in in this region, it's saddening. The people rushed to see a miracle, or they rushed to see this miracle, right? They find the man who had been demonized sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And, and, and this should have been a staggering moment for them. <coughs> Realizing that the one they couldn't bind had ultimately been set free. They should have instantly been encouraged to have faith in this deliverer. And instead, their response was fear. 
Again, the response of humans. We see that there. And they were afraid. Even as the eyewitnesses again explained what had happened, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. The fear of the unknown. Was it a, a, a fear of losing more money because of the cost of the value of those pigs? Uh, was it a fear of one who could deliver a man who had been possessed for years and years? Their response was fear rather than faith. Again, we see how a story about a storm and a boat and a man and some demons and a pig go hand in hand. Fear, faith. The people who come, the townsfolk, they don't care about uh, their, their soul necessarily being saved at this point. But that's what Jesus cared about. And yet, they want to push him out of their region, out of their city. And so, the ending to this story is a pretty cool conclusion. He's about to commission the delivered. It says, and as he was getting into the boat, so Jesus and his di- disciples uh, are leaving... They're going to leave where they had just arrived. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Jesus doesn't stay where he's not wanted. Whether out of ignorance, fear, or or greed, the people in this region have decided they they don't want any more of this miracle worker. It didn't matter that maybe one person had been saved, one person had found deliverance, one person's life had been changed. He had met Jesus and, and his life had been wonderfully transformed. That didn't matter to the rest of the town. No one had ever shown this much love and compassion, mercy and kindness that that this man received from Jesus. They had bound him with chains and with shackles. The townspeople are begging Jesus to leave, but this man begged and pleaded with Jesus to remain or, or to at least allow him to go with him. The people there in the town didn't want Jesus, but Jesus was gracious enough to leave them with this witness. This man wants to go with Jesus and be a disciple, and yet Jesus wants to commission him for good works in his hometown. How wonderful that Jesus told him to go home first. Tell your family, tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Your mission field, you and I today, first is to those closest to us. You don't even have to perfectly articulate every uh, minutia of theology or doctrine. You just need to tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And that's what Jesus tells this man. This man was obedient. He did what Jesus asked. And we need to follow this example. He doesn't argue with Jesus. He doesn't resist the calling 
to share his testimony, but he goes at once. He went away at once and began to proclaim how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. He didn't just stop at his, his home and his friends, even though that's where Jesus told him to go first. He went on and, and he kept preaching and telling the good news of Jesus to a 10-city area, the Decapolis. This is amazing. This man took the life change that had happened and shared it with anyone who would listen. Are you and I that kind of disciple? I know you struggle with real fears. I, I know because I do too. Kevin and I, as we were prepping this sermon this week, we talked about fears. We talked about things that in, in this world that were going on that we could easily be, become occupied with and be afraid of. We talked about very real fears that some of you are facing and that we have, we've, we've shared with and counseled with people over the years. Uh, the fear of rejection. Some of you may be single people who are trying to find that person to spend the rest of your life with have a fear of rejection. Maybe it's rejection from a friend or a, a family member. But the fear of rejection is real. Failure. Maybe some of you students, whether you're in junior high or high school or college age or, or, or whatever, maybe you, you have a fear of not getting into the school that you want, not knowing what career you should choose or letting people down. There's a lot of fear of sickness and illness, high blood pressure, cholesterol, cancer. I mean, we could go on and on. Uh, and, and then death. I mean, one of the greatest fears that people have. And not just personally. But losing a loved one, how do you cope with that? How do you go on? And yet, I think this passage is here for you and I today. To encourage us to take that fear and allow our faith to replace it. Jesus is Lord. Period. There is nothing that I will, will face in this life that even compares to him. That's true, it's fact. But am I living like it? When I live in fear, am I denying Christ's lordship in my life? Am I denying his power? Am I denying his word? Living in fear is not living at all. And, and Jesus called us to a place where we could be filled with life and be filled with joy. Faith fights fear. Faith makes fear completely impotent. Why would I fear rejection by men when God accepts and loves me for who I am because of Jesus Christ? Why would I fear failure when God's definition of success is the very faith that I'm going to be living in? Why would I fear sickness and death when I'm guaranteed an eternity of health and life with Jesus? Faith trumps fear at every turn and in every situation you are facing today, no matter what it is or anything that you will face in the future. 